From APM Reports, this is Educate. I'm Stephen Smith. We're here with senior education correspondent Emily Hanford to get an update on what's been happening lately in the world of reading instruction. Emily, I understand it's been a busy past month or so. Yeah, uh, 2019 seems to be going out with a little bit of a bang. Uh, I would say that a national conversation has been building over the course of the past year about how children are being taught to read, and that's due in large part to the reporting that we've been doing here at APM Reports for the past few years. And that conversation seems to have accelerated in recent weeks as several powerful players and organizations in the literacy world have released various statements in response to what is happening. So where to begin? Well, I think it probably makes sense to go chronologically. Welcome, everyone. Um, We're joined today with Lucy Cawkins, as usual, and Laura Rincon, who's going to be our host for today. The first big event was the week before Thanksgiving, back on November 21st. Lucy Cawkins, who's a professor at Columbia University and the author of materials to teach reading that are widely used in elementary school classrooms across this country, she released a statement that she called, No One Gets to Own the Term Science of Reading. She mentioned this statement in an online forum that she held with educators on that day. No one person gets to own the word, the the idea of science. So yes, there's science to support phonics, and I am all for explicit instruction in phonics. But there is also science to support read aloud, and there's also science to support writing, and there's also science to support writing across the curriculum and growth mindset, and the list goes on and on, Um, essay writing and evidence. And, you know, so one little bit of the answer is no one person gets to sort of own science. What does Lucy Calkins mean by that? And is she responding to the reporting you've done about the science of reading? She didn't say a whole lot about this statement in that online forum, but I have it here in front of me, and so I can tell you a bit about what it says. It does not name our work specifically, but it does refer to the work that journalists have done. And in our most recent documentary, At a Loss for Words, we do talk about Lucy Calkins' work and raise questions about some of the ideas that can be found in her books and materials. We talked about three-queuing, which, as jargon, is kind of opaque, but three-queuing is the idea that readers use contextual clues to identify words um, as they're reading, and that children who are learning to read should be taught various queuing strategies to figure out the words they don't know. Right. Scientists have been talking about the problems with this queuing theory for decades, But it seems that our reporting has opened up a broader, sort of higher-profile conversation about it among educators and the general public. Lucy Calkins, in this statement, is clearly responding to that public conversation. I'd say there are three big areas that her statement covers. She talks about cueing, she talks about phonics, and she talks about dyslexia. What did she say about phonics? I mean, she mentions it in the audio we just heard, and she said um, she is all for explicit instruction in phonics. Uh, That statement from her was welcomed and, I would say, cheered by many people. Fights over phonics instruction have really been at the heart of fights about reading for a really long time, for centuries, I would say. But The debate about reading has been shifting in recent years, and it's pretty widely accepted now that phonics instruction is important. In fact, Lucy Calkins herself is now selling a set of materials to teach kids phonics. Is this new? There wasn't phonics in her materials before? 
Lucy Calkins acknowledges in the statement she released last month that she has only recently begun focusing on phonics in her own materials. But she says that for decades, she has, quote, stood strongly with advocates of reading science on their argument that phonics needs to be explicitly taught. And is it true? Has she? No, uh, not from what I have read in the books that she has written. She mentions phonics, but she doesn't talk about it in a way that lines up with what the scientific evidence shows. Phonics instruction backed by research needs to be directly taught to kids, and it needs to be taught in a systematic way, meaning that you take children through the basic sound letter correspondences in English in a planned sequence, so there are no holes in their knowledge. But in her books, Calkins has not talked about this kind of phonics. For example, in her book, The Art of Teaching Reading, she argues for teaching phonics in an indirect way. She says children should learn through immersion and that they can construct their own knowledge of phonics. She also argues that children should learn about letters through immersion in the alphabet rather than by covering each letter in a sequence. She also seems to belittle phonics a bit. In a 2012 book, she refers to teaching children sound letter correspondences as low-level literacy work. But isn't phonics kind of low-level, In I mean, in that it's one of the first things you need to learn? Yes, phonics is a foundational skill. The larger question that many scientists are asking about Calkins here is whether she understands why phonics instruction matters so much. People who know the scientific research don't talk about phonics as a low-level skill. They talk about learning sound letter connections as the essential mechanism in becoming a skilled reader because it's the ability to successfully sound out words that facilitates automatic word recognition. And once children can instantly and accurately identify words, they free up brain space to focus on the meaning of what they're reading. I talked about how this works in At a Loss for Words. But we know that phonics instruction is not all that children need. Is that right? Absolutely. The scientific evidence is really clear on that. One of the things that we've talked about in our reporting is a model for understanding how reading comprehension works called the simple view of reading. It shows that reading comprehension is the product of two things. It's your ability to decode words, and it's also your ability to understand spoken language. One of the scientists who proposed that model way back in 1986 is a guy named William Tunmer, and I wrote to him and several other reading scientists to get their reaction to the statement Lucy Hawkins wrote. One of the things he and others noted is that she refers to people who support the science of reading as phonic-centric people. And she says that these people are arguing that there should be a focus on phonics, quote, at the expense of everything else. But here's what William Tunmer said. He said, quote, this is a ridiculous claim. I don't know a reading researcher on the planet who believes this. Well, what else did the scientists you wrote to say in response to Professor Calkins' statement? Well, many of them weighed in on what she had to say about cueing, which we mentioned earlier. In her statement, she seems to try to distance herself from this idea a bit. She says the three-queuing system is not a method for teaching reading. Instead, she says it's a way to assess a child's reading. In other words, she says teachers are not teaching kids to use cues, but she says that when teachers are listening to children read out loud for the purposes of understanding how well they're reading, teachers are listening for which of the three-queuing systems a child is relying on when she encounters a word she doesn't know. What several scientists have pointed out is that this is really a distinction without much of a difference. 
What you can see in Lucy Calkins' statement is that she believes in the three cueing theory of how reading works. It seems to be central to her understanding of reading development. I talked to cognitive scientist Mark Seidenberg at length about the Calkins statement. Seidenberg was in our 2018 documentary Hard Words. What he told me, and later published in a blog post of his own, is that his big question after reading Calkins' statement is whether educators like Calkins understand the science well enough to be publishing materials for teaching reading. What are Seidenberg's concerns about her understanding of the science? A lot of his concerns focus on the cueing ideas. In Seidenberg's blog post, which, which we'll link to online, he shows that while Calkins says in her statement that she's all for phonics, her statement makes it clear that she understands the process of identifying words as a process of combining cues. Seidenberg wrote, quote, Dr. Calkins says she disdains three cueing, but the method is right there in her document. And I will add that three cueing is all over her curriculum materials. She may not call it cueing. As we've pointed out in our own work, the cueing theory is more widely known among teachers as this thing called MSV. So M for using meaning to figure out what a word is, S for using sentence structure or syntax, and V for using the visual information or the letters in the words. But I have read many of Lucy Calkins' lessons and materials, and that idea is all over the place as an instructional approach. You just answered a question I've had for a while, actually, which is, what are the three cues? And so M is the cue for using meaning, S is the cue for using sentence structure or syntax, and V is the cue for visual information. Do I have that right? Yep. Okay. And uh, that's in the curriculum materials that Calkins sells. Absolutely. The idea that readers use context to predict and identify words is all over her curriculum materials. There's even a lesson called Guess the Covered Word, where most of a word is covered up and children have to guess what the word is based on the first letter and the meaning of the sentence. So this word, guess, has become a source of some debate, as I understand. Yes, it has. People who use the cueing theory in instruction and assessment insist that they are not teaching kids to guess at words. Now, to be clear... The word guess appears in Calkins' curriculum materials. The word is in there. But in her statement, Calkins appears to be taking, I guess, a new stance. She encourages teachers to stop using the word guess. She suggests that teachers instead say things like, quote, hypothesize drawing on all the sources of information available to you. I think this may, again, be a case of a distinction without much of a difference. Uh, Claude Goldenberg, a professor emeritus at Stanford and a former teacher, he wrote a blog post in response to the Calkins statement, and he summed up the way she's trying to recast the cueing stuff as old wine in a new bottle. About the cueing system, Goldenberg wrote this, The beast is not slain. It is still alive in works such as Calkins' program, even more unfortunately, it lives on in the hearts and minds of way too many teachers who are guided by precisely this concept. And did Lucy Calkins also address dyslexia in the statement you've been talking about? Yeah. So I'm going to talk a little bit more about dyslexia when we discuss some of the other things, uh, some of the other reading-related events of the past few weeks. The, the big news, the headline from Calkins, is that she said in her statement that, quote, dyslexia is real. And this is news because there has been, and there continues to be, as we'll discuss in a moment, disbelief about the existence of dyslexia among some leading literacy experts. But Calkins said in her statement that dyslexia is real, it's a physiological brain disorder. She says that schools need to screen for kids with dyslexia and that students with dyslexia need support. 
So why did Calkins write this statement, Emily? I don't know. She says in the first line of the statement that she was, quote, asked to write a response. And on Facebook, she posted that she is responding by popular request to the debate that is swirling around reading. As I mentioned earlier, her statement has been warmly received by many people, including many scientists and educators who have raised questions about her approach for a long time. I saw her statement characterized as thoughtful, and people said they were grateful for what they see as an evolution in her thinking. But others have questioned her motives. They have pointed out, for example, that while she now says she's embracing explicit phonics instruction, she is also now selling a program to teach phonics. Kathy Rassel, who is a prominent reading researcher in England, wrote this in an email to me. She wrote, too often commercial interests have attempted to hijack the science of reading to the detriment of generations of children. There's a vast literature spanning around 50 years on the science of reading. For teachers, parents, and the general public who want to know more about this body of research, I would suggest that they seek information from sources who don't have anything to sell. And scientist Mark Seidenberg, who I mentioned earlier, he did not mince his words on this topic either. He wrote, referring to the Calkins statement, The purpose of the document is to protect her brand, her market share, and her standing among her many followers. Well, have you been able to talk to uh, Professor Calkins about any of this stuff? I have not talked to her about this most recent statement that she made, but I did make several interview requests when we were producing our most recent documentary, and she declined. Okay, let's move on. What else has been going on in the reading-slash-literacy world? So in early December, there were three different statements over the course of two days from three of the most powerful organizations in this country when it comes to reading instruction. First came a statement from the International Literacy Association. This is a group that represents a whole lot of different people, but it has long been associated with many of the most prominent proponents of whole language and balanced literacy. Whole language and balanced literacy. Remind us what those are again. So whole language is an approach to teaching reading that was popular in American schools back in the 80s and 90s. It's basically the idea that if you surround kids with good books and you motivate them to want to read, they will figure out what they need to know about how the written language works. Now, there were some really good things about whole language, uh, getting good literature into classrooms, giving children time to read books, focusing on student interest and motivation. But the scientific research on reading has revealed that most children need explicit instruction in how their written language works to become skilled readers. Balanced literacy means different things to different people. What I found in my reporting is that it grew out of the whole language movement, and it retains many of the core beliefs I just described. But there is certainly more of an acknowledgement that children need a balance of things in their reading instruction, including, for example, some phonics. So the ILA has long been associated with whole language and with balanced literacy, as I understand it. Has something changed? I mean, what's the news they made this month? So the ILA puts out briefs from their leadership on various topics from time to time. And on December 4th, they released a new brief about children who are experiencing reading difficulties. It was released in response to what the brief described as a, quote, resurgence of articles and reports about reading in the news media. What did the brief say? It had a lot of good information in it and said accurate things about what the scientific research says about reading. It acknowledged that too many children in the United States are not learning to read as well as they might. 
but it expressed concern that the, quote, current emphasis on dyslexia and direct phonics instruction is far too narrow. This sounds like it was a response to the phonics-centric people that Lucy Calkins had in mind when she wrote her statement. Yes, I think the ILA is responding to the notion that what is being pushed in the science of reading conversation is phonics and only phonics. For example, there's a line in their brief that says, professional learning focused only on phonics is misguided at best and dangerous at worst. I posted the ILA statement on Twitter, and a reading teacher who works with dyslexic students replied with this. She said, no one has said phonics should be taught in isolation, nor should teacher prep programs focus solely on phonics. It's about teaching teachers the science of reading. Now, there's always been a bit of fear of phonics that permeates resistance to the scientific research on reading. Many people I've talked to contend that saying the science is all about phonics is a classic straw man argument. That is, it intentionally misrepresents the science as a way to knock it down. Now, I'm not saying that that is what the ILA is necessarily doing here. What I found curious about the ILA's most recent statement is that back in July, the ILA released another leadership brief, and this one was actually all about phonics instruction. It was a clear and compelling argument for explicit and systematic phonics for all kids. It also addressed the really important question of why phonics instruction sometimes fails, and it called on educators to take a thorough look at how they are teaching phonics. So one statement in July all about phonics, and then this other statement a few weeks ago in December. The December statement from ILA did not exactly contradict the earlier statement, In so much as I think it kind of muddied the waters, according to the people I've heard from, it seems to have raised the question, is the ILA really for systematic and explicit phonics instruction for all kids? Or are they warning teachers that the people talking about the importance of phonics are not to be trusted? That's a tone in the piece that people I have talked to picked up on and commented to me. Wow, there really are two camps here in this conversation about reading, aren't there? Yes, it was not called the Reading Wars for nothing. Uh, Some people are and have been for a while blaming me for bringing back the Reading Wars, but I think what we're seeing now is that the Reading Wars didn't really end. Maybe there was kind of a truce and the wars themselves were kind of out of the spotlight and away from public view. And what I've shown in my reporting, I think, is that a bunch of ideas about how reading works and how children should be taught have taken hold in schools over the past few decades. In that same time, scientists have been doing a ton of research about how skilled reading actually develops. Researchers have discovered a bunch of things that are at odds with how reading is being taught in many schools. But this research is having a really hard time making its way into classrooms. Curriculum materials with roots in these disproving ideas are still being sold to schools A lot of teachers and other educators are not being taught the scientific research in their teacher preparation programs. They're not learning it in the training that they're getting on the job. So stuff that is not based on the scientific evidence holds on. And it holds on in part because powerful professional organizations seem to not be totally bought in on the science, as perhaps evidenced by the recent brief from the ILA. And there was another statement from a power literacy organization, too. Oh, tell us about that one. So this one was uh, called a position statement from an organization called the National Council of Teachers of English, or NCTE. They are the professional organization that represents teachers of English and language arts. 
They've also been associated over the years with a whole language and balanced literacy point of view. NCT called its position statement, the act of reading, instructional foundations and policy guidelines. Okay, what did that say? So I read a lot of education reports and policy papers, and there tends to be lots of jargony language in there, as you know. (laughs) No, can't be. (laughs) I would characterize this statement, this position paper from NCTE, as high on the jargon. Several people on Twitter said the same thing. The language in this statement is such that it's hard to figure out exactly what is being said and why in some instances. For example, there's this sentence. Even a simple word like dog is interpreted through the lens of personal experience, which in turn is filtered through cultural representations of dogs and other animals. So there's not really anything, I guess, to argue with in that sentence per se, but what's missing there is that children need to learn that the individual speech sounds in the word dog are represented by the letters D-O-G. This NCTE statement doesn't really say much about how that happens. It acknowledges at one point that phonics, quote, plays an important role in reading. But then the position statement goes on to describe the foundations for effective reading instruction, and phonics is not mentioned a single time. Okay, well, what does it say then about the foundations for effective reading instruction? It basically says immerse kids in a literate environment, make sure they have good books, read to them, and have them talk about what they're reading. Here's, here's one sentence as an example from that section. An effective literacy learning environment immerses children in a language bath that includes regular opportunities to learn and use various forms of oral and written language as a means of drawing on their background knowledge in support of classroom learning and to fulfill a wide range of purposes with a variety of audiences in different sociocultural settings. A language bath. What's wrong with this idea according to science? What the NCTE statement describes is basically the whole language view. This view of how reading develops still undergirds a lot of reading instruction, except that in many classrooms, you will at least see the presence of some kind of phonics instruction now. But like I said, NCTE didn't even include phonics in its recommendations for effective reading instruction. The problem with that is that most kids are actually not going to become good readers unless they get explicit and systematic instruction in how their written language works. Some kids don't need much instruction, but most kids do. This is supported by decades of scientific research that shows how reading skill develops. There are plenty of questions to ask about phonics instruction and how to improve it, but there is no doubt most kids are not going to figure out how their written language works on their own. They need to be taught. You mentioned three statements in two days. What was the third? This one came from the Reading Recovery Council of North America, and it was the only statement to specifically name our reporting. We mentioned reading recovery in our documentary at a loss for words, and we talked about how the idea that people use context to identify words as they read comes in part from the work of the woman who founded Reading Recovery. Her name is Mari Clay. She was a professor in New Zealand. She died back in 2007. But her ideas about reading remain very powerful in the United States and New Zealand and other parts of the world. Lucy Calkins, for example, cites Marie Clay often in her own work about reading. And what did the Reading Recovery Council have to say? It makes some of the same arguments that Lucy Calkins made in her statement. For example, it begins with the idea that no one approach to teaching reading can claim science as theirs. The Reading Recovery Post says there are a lot of different kinds of research and that, 
quote, it's up to educators to read widely and make decisions based on the evidence available. I am reminded, Emily, uh, from the most recent documentary you've done about what the one of the founders of Whole Language, Ken Goodman, said to you, which was, quote, my science is different. Yeah, it's true that there are a lot of different kinds of research, experimental, observational, studies of specific programs, studies in labs that use things like brain scans. When I say the science of reading, I am referring to lots of different kinds of research that's been done over many decades in labs and in classrooms all over the world. This scientific research has converged on a set of findings about how reading works. Some of this research has specifically tested and rejected particular claims or beliefs about reading, such as the idea that skilled readers use multiple cues or sources of information to identify words as they're reading. What did the reading recovery statement say about the work that we at APM Reports have been doing? Well, it named me in the reporting I've done on reading over the past three years. It said that the arguments that I've made about reading are not based on studies of real children in real teaching settings. But that is not true. As I just said, the science of reading includes a lot of different kinds of research done by researchers in a wide range of fields, in classrooms and in labs. And these researchers are in educational psychology and linguistics and neuroscience and a lot of different um, areas. The statement that the Reading Recovery Council posted in December uh, noted that they sent a response to what we reported in At a Loss for Words before we published that piece. And they said that little of that information appeared in our final podcast and article, which is true. And it's standard practice in journalism. You ask for a response to claims made in reporting and you summarize or quote from it as necessary. The Reading Recovery Council actually posted a version of the response that they wrote to us on their own website back in August before At a Loss for Words came out. And we will post that on our website with this podcast. What did their response to our reporting say? They didn't actually name me or APM reports in that August post. They made a case for how readers use multiple sources of information, not just three, they said, but multiple sources of information to identify words as they're reading. And they reiterated, as we pointed out in our reporting, that one source of information reading recovery teachers focus on with kids is the visual information. So their statement, the reading recovery statement, essentially affirms that cueing, or multiple sources of information, is the theory of word reading that informs the reading recovery approach. Are you saying that the reading recovery people and Lucy Calkins of Columbia University both reaffirmed in their responses that their approaches include this cueing idea? Yes. And what's wrong with that again? I mean, can we get clear on this? I'm finding that there is a lot of confusion out there about cueing. The key thing for teachers to understand about the research is that skilled readers do not use cues or context or multiple sources of information to identify or recognize words as they're reading. In fact, what researchers have figured out is that skilled readers know thousands of words instantly on site. Skilled word reading is not a detective game. It's not a series of strategic actions. Word reading is more like a reflex. It's automatic. Your brain processes the letters and sounds of a word very, very fast, and it does that before it accesses the meaning of the word. Now, as we pointed out in A Loss for Words, a reader may need context to know the meaning of a word in a particular instance. We use the example of the word match. 
Could be something you light a fire with. Could be a boxing match. You may need context to know the meaning of a word. You need context to comprehend what you're reading. But when you're a good reader, you don't need context to know that the letter string M-A-T-C-H says the word match. It's instant and automatic. And in fact, you cannot suppress your ability to read that word if it flashes in front of your eyes. And here's the key takeaway from all of that. When word reading is instant and automatic, you are better able to focus on the meaning of what you're reading. You're not using your brain power to identify words. You're using your brain power to understand what you're reading. And everyone agrees that is the goal of reading, to understand what you're reading. The question is, how does a little kid get there? Does part of the cueing confusion lie in the belief that teaching kids to read that way will lead to good reading? In other words, maybe kids need to be taught how to use lots of different sources of information in the beginning, and then ultimately they don't need those multiple sources anymore. Eventually they just know the words. I think that is a big part of the confusion among teachers. It seems to make sense that you would want to give a beginning reader as many strategies as possible to figure out what the words say. But what the research shows is that when teachers prompt kids to use all these strategies, they're actually teaching them the habits of poor readers. And they're taking kids' eyes away from the words. Remember the Guess the Covered Word lesson, the lesson I mentioned earlier that you can find in Lucy Calkins' materials? That is teaching kids to read without looking at the word. And what the research shows is that in order to get fast and automatic at word reading, you have to look carefully at words and link the spelling of the word with its pronunciation and its meaning. The cognitive scientist Mark Seidenberg explained this in his response to Lucy Calkins. I'm going to read some of it because I think, I think he explains it well. He wrote, The problem with the cueing word reading strategies approach is this, quote, It is a slow, unreliable way to read words and an inefficient way to develop word recognition skill. The process is highly inefficient. The child has to generate the cues, combine the cues, generate a candidate word, evaluate whether it seems right, rinse and repeat. Inferring the identity of a word from the cues Dr. Calkins emphasizes is really hard. It's also fallible unless the child is already familiar with the text or the word occurs in an unusually predictable context. Worse, Dr. Calkins ignores the fact that the child is also learning from their mistaken guesses. Our brains are continually updating as we engage in activities like reading. A child who is laboriously deducing the meaning of a word from unreliable cues is also learning mistaken associations from erroneous responses. This is truly how to make learning to read hard. So is that it? Have we covered all the big news in this big news month from the uh, reading instruction world? I think there's one more thing that's worth mentioning. It happened last week at a conference of the Literacy Association of Tennessee. Let's see if I can make this work. This is what I meant by recycling. This is a man named Richard Allington. He's an emeritus professor at the University of Tennessee and an influential researcher and literacy expert. This audio was recorded by someone in the audience and later posted online because of some of the things that Allington said. For example, he questioned the existence of dyslexia. But if dyslexia does exist, and I'm not sure that it does, I'm reasonably sure that it doesn't exist, but that's simply based on experience. It's a little bit hard to hear that audio. He said that he's reasonably sure that dyslexia does not exist. 
He also said that a dyslexia screening law signed into law by the former governor a few years ago was a mistake, and that if the governor had called him, he would have told him to veto it and, quote, shoot whoever made this bill. Wow. Where was that coming from? This was a meeting of a state chapter of the International Literacy Association, and it's important to note that the ILA put out a statement after this conference event that says it does not tolerate speech that is harassing, threatening, or violent in nature. I have listened to all of this audio that was posted online, and I would characterize the talk as a kind of meandering diatribe against dyslexia advocates. Allington actually accused them of being on drugs at one point. It's caused uh, an uproar among dyslexia advocates, as you might imagine. But the reason I thought it was significant to talk about it on the podcast today is because this question of whether dyslexia is real has been an element in the debates about reading. The PBS NewsHour and Education Week produced a piece about dyslexia back in April, and a group of more than 50 people, mostly education professors, co-signed this letter to PBS calling into question whether dyslexia is an identifiable condition. Richard Allington, who we just heard a moment ago, he signed that letter, and his talk at the conference in Tennessee last week was based on an article he recently wrote about this, about dyslexia. And what's his argument? What, what's he saying about dyslexia? He actually makes many valid points in his article. He points out one of the main problems with the dyslexia label, and it's this. Dyslexia basically means difficulty with reading in spite of getting good reading instruction. In other words, if you're taught how to read in an effective way and you still have trouble reading, then there's a good chance you're dyslexic. What Allington asserts in his article is that struggling readers are not getting good reading instruction in this country. Many dyslexia advocates would definitely agree with him on this point. What they would not agree with is where Allington went next with this argument. He says that since there are literally no struggling readers receiving high-quality instruction, there are no dyslexic children. That's a really fraught argument, it seems to me. What do the reading scientists you've been talking to say about dyslexia and this idea that, like, if you're not getting the instruction, then the condition doesn't exist? Well, among the scientific community, there is definitely consensus, as Lucy Calkins acknowledged, that dyslexia is a real thing and that it's neurobiological in origin. There's a genetic component to it, and it seems to have something to do with phonological ability. In other words, the way your brain processes the sounds in language. Now, human ability with phonological skills is distributed across a continuum. Some of us have really good phonological skills. We're really good at processing the sounds in language. Some of us don't have good phonological skills. And then there's a whole bunch of us in the middle. The trick with dyslexia is that it's not something you have or don't have. It's not like having the measles or having a cold. It's some combination of your brain's ability to process the sounds and language and what you have been taught about your written language. And whether you have dyslexia or not is going to depend on some arbitrary cutoff. People below this level of ability are dyslexic. People above this level are not. There is one reason why who we label dyslexic really matters, and there's another reason why it doesn't really matter at all. So here's why a dyslexia label can really matter. It can be the only way for children to access the kind of reading instruction that they need. And far too often, whether a kid can access the needed instruction ends up being related to family income. 
If your child is struggling with reading in school and not getting good help, here's what you can do if you have time and money. You can fight for what your child needs. You can fight for what your child needs and is actually entitled to under federal law. Now, this can mean hiring advocates and hiring attorneys. I know of people who have spent tens of thousands of dollars to get their struggling readers identified with dyslexia. Now, this still might not result in good help for a struggling child. The school may not actually know how to help a struggling reader, as Richard Ellington contended. This is where money continues to matter big time, because at the end of the day, if you have the money, you can probably find a way for your child to be taught how to read. You end up hiring tutors or you send your kid to a specialized private school. But if you are from a low income or even a moderate income family and you're not being taught how to read in school, what do you do? The equity implications of this are truly stunning. Now, what I just explained is why everyone might be better off if no one got identified with dyslexia. Because at the end of the day, what the research shows is that if a child is struggling to read, he needs to be taught how to do it. He needs to be taught how to read whether his struggles with reading are caused by some neurobiological issue we will call dyslexia, or whether his reading struggles are for some other reason. The science does not support the idea that there is one kind of instruction that kids with dyslexia need and some other kind of instruction that other kids need. What the research shows is that kids with dyslexia may need a higher dose of a certain kind of instruction. They may need more of it. But we all need to learn basically the same things to change our non-reading brains into reading brains. And the kind of reading instruction that kids with dyslexia desperately need is good for all kids. It helps them learn how their written language works And this is what you need to become a good reader. Emily, you mentioned that there could be neurobiological issues um, that are causing reading struggles, but you said there might be other reasons. And I'm curious what those other reasons might be. Are there, for example, environmental factors that can make reading hard for a child or, or learning to read hard for a child? One of the things I mentioned a little bit earlier is this thing called the simple view of reading, which we've talked about in our reporting, which shows that reading is the product of your ability to decode words and your language comprehension, basically uh, your ability to comprehend spoken language or things that are read out loud to you. Now, one of the reasons that some kids struggle with reading is because of language comprehension issues. And often that can be related to family income. So for example, when kids grow up with highly educated parents who use sophisticated language around them, lots of vocabulary words who read to them a lot. There are books around them. Those kids have an edge on the language comprehension side of the reading equation, which is half of the equation. Now, one of the things that's very clear in dyslexia is that there are many kids in homes where there are tons of books and families are really well educated and there's a lot of language comprehension, but many of those kids, perhaps up to a third of kids from college-educated families, still struggle when it comes to decoding the words, when it comes to figuring out how their written language works. So there's a lot that goes into why a kid is struggling with reading. One part of it might be some sort of a neurobiological issue that makes decoding particularly difficult, but there can be a lot of other things going on. And like I said earlier, at the end of the day, the definition of dyslexia is when you have a hard time with reading after you've gotten good reading instruction. So we're not really going to know 
who really has dyslexia until reading instruction across the country in the core classroom really lines up with the science. Once everyone's getting effective reading instruction, we can start to have a much better handle on who really has dyslexia. I suspect that one of the reasons why these reading wars um, may not be familiar to some people is because this hasn't been an issue for them. They're, they learned to read well. Their kids uh, did a good job learning to read, or their kids were able to learn to read uh, relatively easily, or at least without the struggles of kids with either these biological, neurobiological or environmental reasons. And so it seems to me, Emily, politically, this is a, an issue that kind of really happens among those who are in the midst of it, but lacks support, you know, from the rest of the, you know, community. Absolutely. A few big points on that one. I think one of the reasons that we are talking about reading instruction in this country is because there has been an advocacy movement pushed by parents of kids with dyslexia who are largely moms who are relatively affluent and often in some of our best school systems. And they did all those right things, quote unquote. There's tons of books in their home and they read to their kids and their kids still aren't struggling with reading. So those are the parents that are pointing out, wait, wait a minute, there's a problem here. I did all the things that are supposed to add up to reading and it's not adding up to reading for my kid. So one of the reasons we're talking about reading instruction right now is because those parents have really been pushing this is this issue. But I think And I think in some ways it's a little bit hidden, like you said. It doesn't affect everyone. There's definitely a sizable portion of the population, but it might only be 40 or 50 percent of us who learn to read relatively easy, kind of no matter how we're taught. That leaves half or more of kids who don't. But like I said before, it's more likely that those kids come from poor homes because coming from a home that is not rich and resourced when it comes to books, does put you at risk for having trouble with reading. So we have an issue here where it affects only some people. Those people are more likely to be from less well-educated homes and less affluent homes. So those people often have less political power. But the other big thing that I have taken away from my years of reporting on this topic is that it's not that rare for people to struggle with reading. It's actually pretty common. It's just that a lot of people hold it really close to their vest. For a lot of people, it's a source of shame and embarrassment, and they don't talk about it very much. And it's come out so much in my own personal life among friends and neighbors, and just as I do this work, how many people have a story of, oh yeah, I really struggled with reading, or oh yeah, my kids struggle with reading. And I think this national conversation about it is allowing more and more people to come out and say, hey... I'm one of those people who don't really get this whole written language thing because no one really taught it to me that well. And or maybe I have a neurological issue, neurobiological issue that makes it particularly hard for me. Well, let's wrap up and let me ask you what your big takeaways are from all of what we have discussed in this podcast. Well, it seems pretty clear that our reporting uh, has ignited a dialogue and raised awareness. I am hearing from lots and lots and lots of teachers, and I'm hearing from principals and superintendents, and I'm hearing from school board members, and I'm hearing from the heads of private schools. And some of them are telling me that they are just beginning to learn about the science and that it's eye-opening and it's helpful. 
And I'm hearing from other educators and I'm hearing from parents and reading tutors and researchers who have known about this scientific research for a really long time. And they are really grateful that we have helped draw national attention to this topic. Other journalists are writing about this now. Ed Week just came out with a big special report on early reading instruction right in the middle of all this stuff that we've been talking about going on. That's another thing that happened. Teachers are writing about it in blog posts. Um, A group of about a dozen major education groups recently released a call to action to improve reading instruction, and the Council of Chief State School Officers announced that they're having a literacy summit in January. So things are happening. What about the people in the groups we've been talking about in this podcast, though, the ones who have released all these various statements over the past month? Well, they are not part of the events that I just mentioned, as far as I know. I remains to be seen, I think, what will happen. Uh, it seems that with these various statements, they have joined the national conversation. And for a lot of people, that is really good news. They are hopeful. But not everyone sees it that way. Uh, the educational publishing market in the United States is about an $8 billion industry. There are a lot of people who have a lot to lose if schools change the way they teach reading and decide to do things like buy different curriculum materials and hire new consultants to do their teacher training and their teacher development. So it remains to be seen whether any one statement is a sign of something changing or, as Mark Seidenberg, the cognitive scientist, put it, a sign that someone is protecting market share. It's uh, it's an ongoing story, and our plan is to keep covering it. Yes, indeed. Thanks, Emily. Thank you. That's Emily Hanford, the senior education correspondent here at APM Reports. Emily Hanford's in-depth reporting on our education system and how reading is taught takes time and resources. APM Reports and the Educate Podcast are part of American public media, which means our work is supported by the public. If this reporting has inspired thought or action, and if you'd like to hear more of it, show your support. Give what you can today at apmreports.org slash donate. Emily's audio documentaries about reading, along with more information on the science of reading and a list of her sources, are available at apmreports.org slash reading. Alex Baumhart and Chris Julin produced the podcast. This episode was mixed by Cameron Wiley. We partner with The Heckinger Report, a nonprofit independent news organization focused on inequality and innovation in education. Support for APM Reports comes from Lumina Foundation and the Spencer Foundation. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM.